Hey business besties, welcome back to the Female Founder World Podcast. It's Jasmine, I'm the host of the show and I am the creator behind the Female Founder World Universe. We are back on the pod for 2024 and yes, I know it has been a bit of a break. I I got your DMs, <laughs> I got the message. We had a pretty big like end of the year with summer and so the team and I wanted to take a bit of time off. Plus, we have been doing our Australia tour. We have events in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Sydney and Brisbane are happening this week. And then we're back to New York and we are back in regular programming. But I wanted to kick off with someone who has a really interesting story, has a different perspective, who is in the weeds right now with the business and really has figured out a way to build momentum. Her name is Maddie Stefanis. She's the founder of a business called 35mm Co. Maybe you've seen them on TikTok. That's where I found them. She's Australian like me. I interviewed her while I was here in Australia visiting for our Australia tour. And she started this business. Well, she started dabbling in this space when she was 19. And then just a couple of years ago, when she was 21 years old, she created a film camera for Gen Z and it was called The Reloader. She made 3.6 million Australian dollars in 18 months. She sold 40,000 units. She went on Shark Tank. Like obviously this is not the normal founder story, particularly for a business that is fully bootstrapped. And I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to figure out what it is that she's tapped into that is just driving so much growth. Plus she's someone who describes herself as being shy and quite introverted. And yet she still shows up fairly publicly for the brand. I mean, she went on Shark Tank in Australia. And so I wanted to talk about that and how she kind of overcame that to be forward facing in her business and and what role that has played in her success as well. But before we get into today's conversation, I do have a very quick resource recommendation for you. It is Female Founder World's very first course. I know that you have probably come to our free workshop series, our group coaching calls, downloaded our free PDFs. We do so much free programming so that when we ask for a paid program or we ask for people to pay for a program, you know that it's going to be amazing. This is called Retail Bootcamp and it is teaching the systems that small businesses are using to hit really big revenue goals by scaling through independent retail stockists. And basically, I just asked all of these bootstrap business owners what helped them hit that first million dollars in revenue. And it wasn't just, oh, we got into Target, we got into Sephora. They didn't spend heaps of money on digital ads. They weren't necessarily relying on going viral on social media, but instead they built the business brick by brick through this wholesale strategy. And that is really good news because it's something that you can repeat. Like it's a framework that you can copy and paste and learn from. There are templates and tools that you can use to be able to replicate that kind of success in your own business without needing to raise millions from investors right now. Or yes, you can still keep working towards that big Sephora or Target or CVS stockist, but let's get some wins on the board right now. Figure out how your business works in wholesale with a lot of smaller indie stockists. And it works. It's how you can hit those bigger revenue milestones right now. 
We have 100 spots in the course. More than half of them are already gone. So I'm going to pop a link in the show notes. This is the first time I've spoken about it in on the podcast. And if you do want to grab a spot, I really do recommend that you go and do that now because we 100% will hit capacity on this one. Okay, let's get into the show and start talking to Maddie. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grinesworthy. Maddie, welcome to Female Founder World. It's so good to have you on the show. It's so nice to finally be here. I'm excited. We've made time to sit down and record this. We uh, spoke quite recently at Female Founder World's Melbourne pop-up party. So I feel like I got a good test run and really was able to dive into your story, which I feel like will make this conversation even better. For people that don't know 35mm Co., what are you building? What am I building? I am building a, so 35mm Co. sells reusable film cameras. So essentially we're a brand that, yes, we sell a camera, but essentially we're selling an experience. There is something so nostalgic and so fun about dropping off your film at a processing lab, not remembering what's on the roll and then receiving those photos in your inbox a couple of days later. Talk me through how the business started because you guys are only uh, officially a couple of years old, but you were testing it for a little while before you launched. And you've got a really interesting story about how you figured out that there was a market here. Talk me through those early days. You're 19 when you start testing out this idea. What happened? Of course. So we've had a few iterations. You're completely right. I was 19 at the time. I had a vintage film camera sitting at home. I don't have a background in photography and I decided to list that vintage film camera for sale on Facebook Marketplace. So I listed the camera for $50. People started bidding in the comments and the camera sold for $250. So naturally, I've always been a little bit business minded. And I think that was a very clear early indication that perhaps this niche had some potential. So I took the money from that sale, I reinvested it into buying more vintage cameras, and I started flipping them. This was over a couple of years, so I essentially was flipping vintage cameras. I had sourced a number of really reputable photographers all over the world who would scour flea markets, test vintage cameras, refurbish them, and then send them to me. I would then on-sell them to the Australian market. And so I hit a couple of pain points in terms of selling vintage cameras, one being that they're vintage, they're in limited supply. The second being that due to them being vintage, the price was high. The vintage cameras were quite scarce. And so the cost of acquiring them was quite high for myself, let alone on selling them to the customer. The third was that vintage cameras can be quite tricky to use. And because no two cameras are the same, there was quite a long customer education process required for that product. So essentially, after months of buying and selling vintage cameras, they were consistently selling out each drop we would release. I came to the conclusion that I wanted to create this camera of my own that essentially addressed all of the pain points I was experiencing with the vintage cameras. Okay, so how does somebody go about and make a camera? You're, you know, you said before you're business minded, but you're 19. It's not like you've started multiple businesses and you have all of these connections and supply chains. Like what were those steps that you did to get it started? It was really tricky, especially not coming from a photography background. Manufacturing a camera just seemed like this huge mountain that I had to cross. I started off, I hopped straight on Google. I looked up camera manufacturers. Funnily enough, there are actually very few camera manufacturers in the world. The major ones kind of reside in Japan and China. So I actually had a friend who was a sourcing agent Um, had a long history in buying and so she had a couple of connections overseas who would essentially 
go and look at all of the factories and vet all of the camera suppliers around the world. So we basically did sort of like an audit. So we had all of these camera manufacturers reviewed. We received samples from all of them. We spoke to all of them. And essentially I landed on this one factory who was a family business. They've been around since the 1950s and film photography is their life. They very much rode the wave through black and white film. They watched film photography die off and then essentially they watched it boom around 2019. So they have been in the industry for such a long time. And what they did was they presented us with a whole lot of ideas, a number of different camera models, and essentially they provided us with a base to a camera and then we were allowed to build on that and add certain features and tweak certain parts. So this entire process took about 12 months. It was definitely super daunting and I'm really lucky that I had a sourcing agent to help me who spoke the native language and could help us actually communicate with the manufacturer. That's a really um, good takeaway there about the sourcing agent and how the there are the, all these people, like people within the ecosystem who can help you do this stuff. Like when you're finding stockists, there are buyer's agents. Like there are these middlemen that can help you if you've got this really complicated industry that you're trying to break into. So I feel like that can be a really good step for people. I'm curious about how you were funding this. Was this coming from money that you'd kind of like stashed away through selling the vintage cameras, reselling them on the website? Yes. So I didn't pull any money from the vintage cameras. I was just letting that cash flow build up in the bank account. Our first stock shipment of the reload of the camera we sell now, I actually invested $50,000 of my own money. So I worked at the supermarket from the age of 15 to 19. I've always been a good saver. And so I essentially saved every cent and decided to risk it all on this business idea. Oh my God. I love this. Good for you. Okay. So then you've got your your first product that you guys have invented and created. How did you launch it? Because when I looked at your story and realized that that had only been around for like a couple of years, I was pretty shocked because I feel like I've, I've seen you everywhere. The, uh, the team at Female Founder World, especially like the Gen Z folks on the team have been like, you have to get Maddie on the show. <laughs> like her brand is so cool. How did you have that launch that created so much buzz and now makes you look huge? So 35mm Co. essentially started off as the Instagram account that I first created was almost like this idealistic, it it looked like a Pinterest board. It was Mm -hmm. almost like this Instagram page full of film photos from Pinterest or other photographers. It was like a a bit of an artwork. It almost looked like this beautiful picture perfect Instagram. And so as I was selling the vintage cameras, I was very much creating that ideal feed and this is what your photos can look like and so I think that why 35mm co launched so well when we moved into our second iteration when we launched the reloader is that I completely flipped the feed so in the background we worked on new branding we changed our logo we changed our brand colors we did a photo shoot and seven days before the reloader launched we completely flipped everything so all of a sudden this super grungy vintage looking feed became very pink and very much a brand rather than just a pinterest mood board mm-hmm. so i think that that in itself created a lot of buzz because people were so curious as to what was happening and why we had so suddenly flipped our branding told everyone that vintage cameras once sold out weren't being restocked Interesting. When I look at, listen to that story, I'm like, oh, that's a really clever approach. Did you have, did you take any courses? Did you go to business school? Did you study marketing? Like, or was this just an intuitive thing that you're kind of figuring out as you were going? 
look, it was pretty intuitive. I was at uni at the time. I can't say that I was a very good student. I never attended lectures you were or busy. classes. You were busy. Yeah. <laughs> I would just do my assignments and hope that I would pass. Um, but I was studying. I was doing a double degree in marketing and entrepreneurship at the time. Okay, cool. Okay. So you're like, you are trained as well, but do you think that you learn more on the job or that you learn more at school? Oh, definitely on the job. I actually didn't finish my degree. I just found that I was learning so much from the business and trial and error and testing new things online that it was far more valuable for me. Okay. So I've got a couple of stats here, which um, I'm pretty blown away at. One is that you sold 40,000 cameras in 18 months and you did 3.6 million in revenue in that 18 months as well. How were you doing that? Like what was driving most of those sales? Solely direct to consumer, those sales. We didn't have any retailers at the time and TikTok was the biggest contributor to that revenue. In the days leading up to the Reloader launch, we went hard on TikTok. We were posting multiple times a day. I think we were lucky that at that time, product-based videos were going really viral on TikTok. We launched in the middle of lockdown and I think that an element of luck was definitely at play in the sense that the world's eyes are on their phones. TikTok was very new, very up and coming and product-based videos were performing incredibly well. People were really curious about film cameras at the time and I think there was definitely a noticeable boom in the rise of film photography. And so popping these products on people's feeds, they were so intrigued as to what they were and how they worked that our videos just went consistently viral. And I think that Mm We grew a really strong organic TikTok following, which then again translated, which also translated into our Instagram followers too. You're saying we a lot. I'm noticed on your TikTok that it's not like just you that's on the feed. Did you have someone else creating content for you? Or like, how did you think about that? Was it in the first early days, was it just you? It was just me. Isn't it funny how we say we as business owners? It was always totally. just <laughs> me. I think that 35 has just always felt so much bigger than only myself. A hundred percent. And also like, I feel like there's something there that's a bit of an imposter syndrome as well, where it's like, well, I couldn't have done this all by myself. Do you know what I mean? Even though yes. in the early days you really did, you did do this. It is you, it is an I. Um, but I think we say we as like a, a protection mechanism to kind of like, to broaden out the, um, the responsibility and also the credit, I think as well. Okay. So now you are, you're still blowing up on TikTok all the time. You have your own account where you're pretty like forward facing. Talk me through your approach to that. What's working now that the landscape has shifted a bit? Is like TikTok shop working for you guys? Do you have a content team? What's the layout there? I'll split it up into the 35 account and my personal TikTok account in Mm -hmm. terms of TikTok shop. We're actually not on TikTok shop yet. So we're only just forming as an LLC in the US. So we're hoping to launch onto US TikTok shop in the coming months. I believe that TikTok shop is coming to Australia around mid-year as well. So that should be really interesting to see how it performs. I think you'll do really well. I think so too. I think my only thing about TikTok shop is that we sit at a 99 RP and I don't know that it's quite an impulse purchase, but I think that it'll be really interesting to see how the product performs. Okay, cool. Um, And so who is creating content in your team now? So in-house, we have Liliana, who's our content creator. She essentially stands as the face of the 35 millimeter code TikTok. And she's been doing that for probably about a year and a half now. So she's very much the face of the brand. People go up to her in the street and ask if she's the 35 millimeter co-girl. I really wanted to have someone who 
was essentially an embodiment of our customer. I think that Lil fits in really well as our ideal 35 millimeter code girl or how we envision our customers to be. And so there's that element of relatability, having her as the face of the brand. That's so interesting, that uh, role of like shifting it off you as the founder, even though like, you know, you are, you fit the demographic of your customer, your Gen Z, like it would make sense for you to be forward facing. Why did you make the decision not to do that on the brand account? I'm naturally super introverted and I think it was just as simple as the fact that I didn't like posting about myself online. I didn't love public speaking. That is something that has not come naturally to me. It's very much been chipped away at and worked on over time. So I never wanted to be the face of the brand myself. That's really interesting. Okay, cool. And then how do you like approach your own TikTok? You're talking about the business, but you're also doing vlogs. Does that lead to sales? How do you think about that? I think that it probably works probably more from a personal brand point of view for me personally. It definitely helps connect with other female founders, other business owners, which I think has been so incredibly valuable because I don't come from a family with a business background. I've Mm -hmm. really felt the brunt of, I guess, like loneliness that comes with entrepreneurship at the very beginning. I felt like I didn't have anyone to turn to for help. Whereas now I feel like I have a really strong network around me of people I can call if something goes wrong or if I need a quick little piece of advice. I think that that's been extremely beneficial. From a brand awareness point of view, yes, it's definitely helped and people now know me as the founder of the brand, but I don't think that I necessarily need to be front-facing on the brand account. I do like keeping them a little bit separate. How often are you guys posting at the moment? Once a day. Okay. Okay, I I really need to step it up. Interesting. (laughs) Um, The other thing I want to talk about, so that's driving a lot of your sales for the website, kind of that like content, organic content approach. But I want to chat about wholesale and retail and what role that plays in the business. Is that something that you're thinking about? Is that contributing to that revenue at the moment? How do you think about that? Absolutely. Wholesale is probably contributing to about 30, 35% of our revenue at the moment. It has been such an incredibly good way to reach new audiences and new customers. I think the thing with our product is that it's such a good gift. So particularly around Mm. Christmas time in Q4, the camera performs really well in retail. We're currently stocked in, for your Australian listeners, Universal Store, The Iconic and Culture Kings. And for the US, we're in Revolve, Free People and Urban Outfitters. So as you can imagine, being an Australian company, having access to those major US retailers, customers and website, the brand awareness is just invaluable. It has been such a great way to reach new customers. Um, And it really has increased our revenue. I find that we push a lot more volume through wholesale, which is amazing. Okay. So how did those partnerships come about? Like, let's say you're someone who has a brand that's doing well, maybe you're D2C, e-com, and you're ready to take that step into retail what worked for you and what do you think people should try and do? A couple of them, to be completely honest, landed in my inbox, which is great. I think that if you have a strong brand and a strong brand identity, then inevitably retail buyers will slowly start to come after you. And it always happens at a time where you're not quite ready. So I think that lots of founders have experienced the mad rush to scramble and get your products ready for retail. I think one way you can really set yourself up well is by doing the basics, having your SKU listed on your product, having barcodes, all of those really simple things that I didn't think to do in the beginning and were a huge barrier to us entering wholesale. 
I think that if you're going into wholesale, you need to be super hyper aware of your margins, your unit metrics, and whether it's actually a sustainable way for you to maintain a good profit margin whilst on selling your products to other retailers. We actually have this retail course that um, that we're currently in pre-enrollment for. And I think this is something that people don't realize. It's like if you don't have the SKU and the barcode on your products, sometimes you have to redo your product packaging for wholesale. What are some of those other things that are kind of like on the checklist that you need to have set up? You also talked about margins and your unit economics. Like specifically, what should that be looking like? In terms of unit economics and margins, I think it is completely dependent on your brand and what your net profit needs to be for you to actually operate a sustainable business. But when it comes to product packaging, a major red flag for us and a mistake I made is that our camera box doesn't have a photo of the product on it. So we have product packaging that it has this beautiful gradient on it. It says the brand name. It says that it's a camera, but there is actually no image. So if it's sitting on a retail shelf, customers can't open it and look at the product. So what we've recently had to implement for a retailer we're launching into is we've needed to actually put a vector image of the camera on the front of the box. Otherwise, we have to go back to the drawing board and figure out, do we want to do clear packaging? Is there a way that customers can actually see the product hanging on a retail shelf? Because our brand awareness alone isn't enough to carry customers knowing what's inside that box. It's so true. It's such a different experience uh, shopping when you've got a whole website page and all of the storytelling that happens there, all of the imagery, maybe you have UGC on the product page as well, versus if you are discovering something in a store on a shelf and you just see a box. Like how do you tell your whole brand story that was on that product page on that box? Absolutely. I think it is something that you really do need to visually communicate well, especially as a first touch point. If someone's in a retail store and they've seen your product for the very first time, look, they may not pick it up and buy it, but at least having that brand recognition and then maybe they'll see it in their Instagram feed. Maybe they'll see it on an ad. I think that's a really good first touch point and introduction to the customer. So you're someone who has this one kind of hero product that you're known for, the camera, it's called the Reloader. How do you think about adding new products to a company like that? This is such an important category for us and something that I didn't do very well at the beginning. I think that the Reloader launched with so much hype and it performed really well. And I very much pushed to the wayside new product development and launching new SKUs. I think that you need to understand that companies need to be well-rounded. You can't rely on a single product, particularly if it's a trending product. And I'm very lucky that film photography doesn't really feel like a trend. I think it's very much will stand the test of time and the data proves that. But I think that you need to almost safeguard yourself with other product lines, particularly because we don't have a high repurchase rate. We sell a product that is reusable. It solves the problem with single use. So not having a high repurchase rate is something that you actually need to factor into your business model and how you're going to create recurring revenue with customers. So we're currently looking at, we've just released photo albums and the concept behind the photo albums was to be able to cater to the 40,000 existing customers who have all purchased a camera, but don't have anywhere to put their photos. So I think Mm. that looking at complementary products like that is really important to assist and almost cushion your core product line in any business. So then how do you go about launching a new product like that? Are you, is it through email? Like, how do you, how do you communicate? Like, Hey, Hey team, we have something new for you to buy now. 
We did do a lot of email marketing. We actually heavily relied on TikTok for the photo album because visually it is so striking. We found that the photo album videos often went viral on TikTok when paired with a really nostalgic audio. So I think that TikTok was such a key player, but as we continue to release new photo album designs, we've had lots of requests for new colorways, new artworks. It actually doubles as a coffee table book. So we're very much pushing a little bit into the interior design, home and lifestyle segment as well. I think that we will rely on that email list building um, and particularly not necessarily a scarcity model, but we've had a lot of demand for the photo album in the US and it's actually still not available in the US. Our stock's landing in a couple of weeks. So I think that we will very much take that momentum and do what we can with it. How do you prepare to launch in another country? Are you finding a like a local fulfillment distribution centre? Do you have like team members on the ground Is it a logistical headache? It's a little bit of a logistical headache, but I think that you can do it quite well. It honestly depends on your product. I think for us, we're lucky that no part of our product is an aerosol or flammable. It is quite literally just a camera. We don't have any battery issues. So shipping internationally, we are completely fine. We have a US 3PL in Utah. So our stock gets shipped from China directly to the US warehouse and from China directly to the Melbourne warehouse in Australia. So we split up our stock shipments, US customers receive their orders directly from the US, and it's definitely helped in terms of expediting shipping. I think that it gets to a stage where as your volumes continue to increase, you can't continue shipping from Australia to other parts of the world. So essentially that was our biggest pain point. And in terms of launching into US retailers, you really do need a way to get stock over to them quickly. 100%. Let's talk about Shark Tank now because this came along in 2023 and I'd heard about you, but I think like once Shark Tank happened, you kind of blew up on my feed and and in my kind of world. I'd love to know how that opportunity came about. You're on Shark Tank Australia. How did they hear about you? How did you pitch for the show? And then talk me through what like the preparation process is for going on a show like that. Of course, I actually saw a LinkedIn post from Jane Liu, who was one of the sharks on Shark Tank. So Shark Tank Australia has had a five-year hiatus. It hasn't been on screens for the last five years and they decided to bring it back in 2023. So they opened casting, they were accepting applications and I just thought, I grew up watching Shark Tank. Some of the female founders that I follow now were on Shark Tank back when I was a teenager. So I just thought you know what, I'm just going to apply. I had heard that there was something like 10,000 applicants, that it was really slim chances of even getting a response or a call back. They were only contacting successful prospective applicants. So I submitted an application. I kind of just put my laptop to the side and thought, look, I'll probably never receive anything back, but at least I've done it. I've given it a shot. And I had a call from a producer the very next day. Wow. Okay. And then how do you get your website ready? How do you get your pitch ready? What's the process for that? Especially like you said before, and you said it on stage at the event as well, like you're someone who isn't super comfortable with public speaking. Now you're going on a national TV show that has like international distribution through social. What does that look like for someone like you? It was a lot of prep on the business side of things. I think the hardest part is that you don't know when a television show is airing and this is very much the same I would gather across most of the television network if you are like a contestant on a show or featuring on reality tv you don't actually know when your episode's going to air so in terms of my episode you get seven days notice 
I had, I actually got to have a peek at my episode, my pitch specifically the night before it aired, which was really lucky because we were able to download the content and repurpose it for socials so that the minute it aired on national television, we were ready to go. We had clips ready for TikTok. We could push out that content straight away. On a personal note, in terms of actually preparing to speak, it was terrifying. Mm. I think that Shark Tank is a really scary experience. You don't get to see the room before you walk in. You have to walk to the end of this carpet and the Shark Tank music that you hear playing on the television actually plays in real life and it plays for about a minute (laughs) straight. So you quite literally have to have a stare off with these sharks for an entire minute before you start your pitch. Okay, that's like an introvert's nightmare. You did so well though. Like you could not tell that you were nervous at all. You killed it. Thank you. I was definitely nervous. I think that the biggest blessing was that I actually filmed on the very first day. And so I almost gathered that hopefully the sharks were just as nervous as I was. And I felt that they were pretty kind to me in the tank. They were all really, really lovely. One thing that I want to chat about, we've spoken a lot about a lot of the big wins that you've had. You mentioned before that a mistake that you made was, um, you know, not focusing on those additional kind of products right from launch. What are some other lessons that you've had that you've just been like, shit, probably could have known with somebody warning me about that beforehand. Is there anything that comes to mind? One thing that Shark Tank really highlighted for me was that our unit metrics were just not where they needed to be. And as someone who is so naturally a marketing girly, I was not across the financials in my business. So I think that the biggest thing to come out of Shark Tank was mentors saying to me, you actually need to get a proper accounting team behind you to support Mm -hmm. your business and sustain it going forward. I think that for the first couple of years, I was running our finances entirely by myself and I had no concept of a cash flow report or forecasting or understanding that over forecasting or under forecasting could actually really impact my business for up to the next 12 months. So I think that that was probably the biggest key takeaway in understanding that as an e-commerce business, I needed an e-commerce accountant who understood what I was trying to achieve, that we were in this growth stage where I was paying myself an incredibly low salary because it was very much business first. So I think that that's probably one of the most valuable lessons is knowing that you actually do need to understand your unit economics. And I've always pushed it to the wayside because I'm not interested in the finances, but I need to be financially literate or at least try my best to understand what's happening in the company as a founder. Otherwise, we quite literally can't continue to exist as a business. Yeah, this is something like you're not the first person to say this on the show. I hear this a lot um, that someone, you know, you create a business because you need the product or you have the understanding of the customer or the market, uh, but you don't necessarily have that like financial literacy. But again, it's literally just hiring an e-commerce accountant and then getting somebody else to kind of like explain it to you and then you can figure it out. Um, For people who don't understand what you mean by unit economics and like cash flow report, like could you give a little bit more insights about, for example, unit economics? What does that look like in a business like yours? Yeah, of course. And I'm going to try my best not to butcher this because again, I'm still not entirely financially. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's give the, let's give the cliff notes here. Totally. So You have your product cost and essentially at the end of the day, you need to be looking at your net profit, which is the amount of money left over after all expenses have been paid. So for someone like me who is so marketing centric and marketing focused, I was trying to push out every campaign under the sun. We were on PR retainers, marketing retainers, doing photo shoots, doing all of these amazing, fun 
essentially the pretty things in business. It's almost like shiny Mm -hmm. object syndrome. But at the end of the day, if it's actually not generating revenue for you, then it's hindering your bottom line. So the consequence of this, I guess, is that we've actually just, we're about to implement a 20% price increase tomorrow, which was a really hard decision to make as a founder because we sit at a $99 price point. So tipping over to that $119 mark was such a hard decision to make. So I think that if you can get it right from day one, you will benefit so incredibly much in the future. I understand that economic changes have caused a lot of businesses to introduce price increases, but it is not an easy decision to make. And if you can avoid it, you're definitely far better off. I'd love to know a little bit more about those big expenses, like the agencies that you've worked with. Are you working with PR or marketing or like paid advertising agencies now? Now that you've kind of gone through this deep dive in your financials, what are you still paying for? And what are you like thinking, oh shit, we really shouldn't have been spending lots of money on that? We're currently paying for, we have a freelance media buyer who runs all of our Facebook, Google and Pinterest ads. She's Mm -hmm. incredible. Something that I definitely value outsourcing because I don't want to do it myself. So I love working with her. She very much feels part of the team. She's been with the business for a long time. We're actually on pause with our PR retainer for now. We work with an incredible agency. And the thing I love about Grace, who owns our PR agency, is that if we don't have any upcoming product launches, any events or activations, she will say to me, put your retainer on pause. You do not need to be paying me a monthly fee when you don't have new and exciting things to come out that we can pitch to press. So I think that I love that relationship and really value that with her because she is so brutally honest and really does have the business's best interests in mind. That is uh, very rare and very lucky. I think that having someone who has that mindset, also you're going to have a more long-term relationship with her now, right? Because you know that she understands the business and you've built that trust and you don't feel like you're being taken for a ride. I do hear a lot of horror stories with PR agencies about just like the amount of money you can funnel in there without getting that, um, that return back. But you guys have had so much success and I'm sure that the PR that she's been able to get you has been a huge part of that. So it's definitely something that's like complicated and a bit nuanced to consider when you're thinking about funding. Let's talk about team. So you've got these, uh, you've got some agencies and freelancers that you're working with. And I'm definitely going to ask you for your, um, your growth marketer recommendation after the show, because I feel like that's someone that's so hard to find as well. But what, who was on your team and when did you bring them on? My team is so incredibly small. So I only have two staff members in-house. I have mm-hmm. Liliana, who is our TikTok content creator. She's been with us for probably a year and a half now as essentially the face of the brand on our socials. And then I have my production manager who she's very much a part of the team. We catch up in person. We actually met our manufacturer together a couple of weeks ago in Melbourne, which was such a fun experience and like a really nice shared experience because she's been working on the brand for such a long time. Yeah. So to be able to do that together was really special. Those are essentially my two in-house team members and then everything else is contracted. So graphic designers, accountants, my CFO, we have someone who helps us with forecasting. They're all contractors external to the business. And I think that was solely a lifestyle decision on my part because I'm 23 and I want to have that flexibility to move around. I didn't want an office at this stage in my business journey. Yeah, I think um, contractors and freelancers make the small business world go around for sure. The last thing I want to ask you about, Maddie, is for a resource recommendation. You are a young founder. You're someone who is building a product-based business. How are you doing this? What resources have helped you? And what can you recommend for other people who are watching you thinking, whoa, she's so impressive. Like what's working? 
I have two things for you. One of them I've spoken about before at Female Founder Worlds event last week. It's a website called Rocket Reach. If you Mm -hmm. are going after wholesale buyers in your business, you want to launch into retailers and you're wondering how do I get in contact with these companies and these buyers who look after the product ranges, Rocket Reach is awesome in that it syncs with LinkedIn. So if you hop on Rocket Reach and you type in the name of an organization such as Urban Outfitters, it will actually populate all of the people who have their job description listed as, for example, the buyer at Urban Outfitters. It will then give you their company or their organization's email address so you can actually go and outreach to that buyer and send them your pitch deck, send them an intro to your brand. Most of the time you probably won't receive a response, but I think it is a great way to get your foot in the door and honestly ambush them with emails. I think that persistence is key. Buyers receive so many emails and you just need to not be discouraged and keep trying your luck. That's a really great recommendation. Is there anything that you have um, that's kind of like helped you personally? You said that you're someone who's like quite shy, quite introverted. What's helped you as you've been thinking about showing up at on national TV, showing up on TikTok? Is there anything that's been kind of supporting you there? There's lots of little things. I think that I really frequently listen to podcasts, particularly founder stories. I love Mm -hmm. listening to other founders and hearing how they speak about their business journeys, how they articulate themselves. And I practice my public speaking a lot. So if I'm driving in the car, I will often talk to myself. If you're driving next to me, chances are you think I'm speaking on the phone. I am actually quite literally Q&A responses speaking to myself. I find that it's such an easy way to practice telling my brand story, figuring out the way that I want to show up as the founder of the brand. I think also posting on TikTok is just a great way to practice. And I know that your first few videos aren't going to be perfect. And I think that's the beauty of TikTok. It doesn't need to be. But I think that finding a way to consistently show up and actually verbally figure out how you want to communicate is such a good way to do it even one-on-one coffees with founders anything that gives you the opportunity to speak about yourself and your brand I know that talking about ourselves can be quite uncomfortable I think especially in Australia we're almost conditioned not to speak about ourselves it can be self-promotion can be quite a hard thing Mm -hmm. and so I think that putting yourself in those situations can be really valuable and good character building I couldn't agree with that more. Just practice, practice, practice. And if it's in front of a mirror or in front of friends to begin with, like just do it because um, every time you hear your voice say the wrong thing, you'll know, like, and you'll get better. Absolutely. Maddie, thank you so much for coming on the Female Found World podcast. It's been awesome chatting with you. Where can people find you? Where can they find 35? Thank you, Jasmine. It's been so fun chatting with you. They can find me on Instagram or TikTok. My handle is Maddie Stefanis and 35, we are 35mm underscore co. Quick shout out to all of our business bestie subscribers. If you are loving the show and you are building a consumer, CPG or e-commerce business, or you're about to build one, this membership will give you access to the people, experiences and the tools that you really need to build your dream business. Head to femalefounderworld.com forward slash subscriber for more.